You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 101, Nomanhan Part 3, July Attacks. When the fighting had started around Nomanhan in May 1939, there would be a slow escalation of fighting over the following few weeks. More Japanese units were brought in and committed to the attack, and more Soviet units would be brought in to meet them. This would continue in June, but both sides would decide to make massive commitments to the fighting, with the Japanese preparing to launch a large attack by the 23rd Division, along with large numbers of reinforcements, including the commitment of over two-thirds of all of the armored assets available to the Kwantung Army. Throughout all of June, planning and preparations would be done, while at the same time air operations were launched by both sides to try and gain some level of control of the air over the battlefield. Then, on July 1st, the attack would begin. During this episode, we will be covering the preparations for the attack and then the course of that attack throughout July. For the Japanese, it would be a familiar story, with early successes that quickly turned into a failure as the Soviet forces were able to regain their composure, mount a defense, and then launch a counterattack. During the first days of June, probably the most famous participant in the fighting around Nomanhan would begin to be involved, when General Georgi Zhukov would meet with Voroshilov on June 2nd. He would receive information about the fighting that had already occurred, and he would be given the orders to go to Mongolia and to quote the deputy chief of the general staff, quote, The moment you arrive, see what's going on out there and report to us without pulling any punches. During this initial stage, Zhukov was simply being sent to the area to provide first-hand information to the Red Army General Staff about what was happening. There was, however, always the possibility that after he arrived, he would take some kind of command position in the theater, which is exactly what would happen. Zhukov and his staff would be on a flight to Mongolia in a matter of hours, and when he arrived, the report that he gave made it clear that he believed that the fighting would continue and would almost certainly escalate, and that it was not another of the many incidents that had come and gone in the area over the previous six months. Under this assumption, he believed that the Soviet troops in the area would not be enough to meet further Japanese aggression, and therefore more troops were needed to be sent as soon as possible. He would request three additional infantry divisions, a tank brigade, and additional air and artillery units. This request was quickly accepted in Moscow, and their reinforcements would be dispatched, mostly in the form of mechanized infantry units. 
In the air, a hundred fighter aircraft and tactical air squadrons would also be sent, along with some of the most experienced Soviet air units, many of which had been involved in the fighting in Spain. These were pretty much the best air units in the Soviet military, and it was an important commitment. Zhukov was also not a fan of how the local commanders had handled the situation, especially around the lack of reconnaissance that he felt was being done to try and determine Japanese strength and intentions. Because of these concerns, Zhukov would request that the local commander be dismissed and replaced by, wouldn't you know it, himself. Funny how that works. Importantly, as the Red Army moved more and more units into the area, most of this was generally unknown to the Japanese. Throughout the early weeks of June, the general belief among the Kwantung Army leadership was that there was maybe a thousand Soviet soldiers in the area, yeah, a couple of batteries of artillery, and a couple of tanks. The actual strength of the Red Army at that moment, with troops that were already in the area or shortly would arrive, was around 12,000 men, over 100 artillery and anti-tank guns, 266 armored vehicles of a variety of types, and 100 aircraft. (laughs) Quite the difference. On the Japanese side, they were also looking at how they could move more forces of their own into the area, and then what should be done with them. At Kwantung Army Headquarters, they wanted a greater commitment of resources and requested more units from Tokyo. But there would always be resistance from Tokyo to send additional resources into Mongolia when fighting in China was continuing and was constantly expanding in scope and was constantly requiring more units to be sent to China to reinforce. With the request for more units denied, a plan was developed that would only require units that were already in the theater, which would be the genesis of a plan prepared on June 19th, entitled Operational Plan Against Outer Mongolia. The plan was drawn up with the desire to launch a decisive attack, especially as it appeared that more Soviet air units were being brought in and Soviet air units were becoming bolder in their attacks, including attacks against Japanese units in what was considered to be the Japanese side of the border, which would be reported by the 23rd Division to Kwantung Army Headquarters on June 19th. This new plan involved the commitment of one brigade of the 7th Division, which was considered to be an elite Japanese formation with that brigade being sent on a flanking maneuver across the Halha River, which they would cross on the northern side of the Soviet positions. Once across the river, they would advance south to take the Soviets in the flank, with the objective of dislodging their artillery positions, which were on the west side of the river. They would then hold their position before advancing, before advancing to the east to meet troops of the 23rd Division, which would launch an attack to trap the Soviet forces between the two Japanese units. To support these attacks, the 2nd Air Group, made up of 180 planes, would be dispatched to provide air support, and two regiments of tanks, an artillery regiment, and other supporting units would also be sent to the 23rd Division. It would be no small undertaking, and more than enough to deal with the expected number of Soviet units, maybe just not the actual number of Soviet units. When details of this plan were evaluated and considered, there would be some changes. Specifically, the elite units of the 7th Division would not be used for the flanking maneuver. Instead, that attack would be led by the 23rd Division, which would use most of its strength to attack the Fua Heights, which were on the east side of the river. They would then build some pontoon bridges to cross the river, at which point they would attack south to reach the Soviet positions. This shift of putting the units of the 23rd Division in the decisive position was down to not wanting to insult the leadership of the 23rd Division, This was, after all, their area of the front, 
and they had been involved in the start of the fighting. At the same time, most of the reinforcements that were being sent in the area would take the place of the 23rd Division in the previous plan, so they would attack on the eastern side of the river. And so the goal of the attack was the same, to trap Soviet forces between two groups of Japanese units. Uh, The units were just swapped around a little bit. There were a few possible problems with this plan if things did not go well. First of all, If the full attack was not successful, it was possible that the troops that moved onto the west side of the river would be in a position to be surrounded and destroyed, just as the attackers on May 28th had been. The Kwantung army also had only a very limited number of pontoon bridge-building materials, which meant that if the bridge was destroyed after it was built, it could not be replaced. And those materials that were available were also not sturdy enough to allow for the transit of armored vehicles. And so, armored vehicles would be limited to the eastern operations. These challenges were fully recognized by Kwantung Army headquarters, but the belief was that the attack would be a quick success, which would end with a more permanent bridge being taken, which was currently under Soviet control. And once this was in Japanese hands, the the problems of the pontoon bridge were no longer an issue. While the plans were being finalized for what was to be a very bold and risky attack, the information transmitted to Tokyo for sign-off from Imperial headquarters was a bit more vague and generally shied away from some of the more risky details that were inherent to the plan. In the days before the attack, Japanese reconnaissance flights would be flown, and they would see activity behind the Soviet front. However, they completely misinterpreted the meaning of what they found. What they saw was that there were some tanks that were in the area, but then there were also a large number of trucks leaving the front on multiple different days, all driving to the west and away from the area of fighting. This was interpreted as evidence that the Soviets were abandoning their positions, and therefore were ripe for a Japanese attack. What was actually happening is that the trucks were evidence of a massive Soviet supply effort, with convoys of trucks being sent to the front every single night to bring up more and more men and supplies from the distant Soviet rail depots. They would then unload in the early morning hours before turning around and heading back to the west to prepare for the next night to do it all over again. While the Soviet forces were becoming more and more prepared, the preparation among the units of the 23rd Division were not proceeding quite as smoothly. There were two major problems. The first was that the specific orders for the attack did not arrive until just a few days before the attack was scheduled to be launched, leaving several units up to 250 kilometers from their jump-off point. To make it to the front in time, they then had to march for up to 15 hours a day just to arrive in time to go into the attack, leaving them totally exhausted. The other problem was that the level of supply for the units at the front and in preparing for the attacks was, was not great. Weapons, ammunition, and other supplies were coming up short, to the point where the chief of the Ordnance Bureau of the 23rd Division shot himself out of shame for the state that the troops found themselves in before the attack. But none of this prevented the start of the attack at 4 a.m. on July 1st, when 15,000 Japanese troops, including 70 tanks, began moving to their jumping-off points. The most important area of the attack in these early hours was the attack on Fua Heights, from which further attacks would develop. I like the description of the heights by a Japanese colonel who participated in this attack, because the heights, as they were called, were not actually some kind of stunning geographical feature, but instead, and this is a quote, quote, a raised pancake, which was really only 30 to 40 feet higher than the areas around it. 
But it would be this pancake that would be occupied without much resistance by the Japanese attack. With Fua under Japanese control, focus shifted to the river. The plan was a reasonable one. Infantry would move across the river on boats and would create a bridgehead from which to protect the creation of the pontoon bridge. Very reasonable. But there was one problem. At the point where they had to put the boats and move across the river, there were massive cliffs close to the river, which meant they had to bring the boats down 20 meter drops. This, of course, slowed things down a bit, but luckily the crossings would eventually happen and they would be unopposed. This meant that even though they did not get started until early in the morning on July 3rd, the crossings were still made by a battalion of the 71st Infantry Regiment. The bridge was then thrown across the river and completed by 6.30 a.m., which allowed the rest of the troops of the 71st Regiment, along with two other regiments, to move across the river. It only took about three hours for the three regiments to transit the bridge, at which point the bridge started to allow for the masses of artillery and support vehicles and supplies to begin making their way to the western side of the river. As with every major bridge crossing, there were traffic problems, a lot of traffic problems, but those were expected, and as would be shown over the next, you know, six years of warfare during the Second World War, seemed to be unavoidable. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. During the first three days of the attack, there was not an organized Soviet response. This was because, as blind as the Japanese were to the strength of the Soviets, the Soviets were equally as blind to Japanese intentions. This allowed the crossing of the river to happen unmolested, and it would not be until the Japanese units attacked early on July 3rd that a Soviet response would be made. After crossing the river, Japanese infantry units began to move south, with their objective being to reach Kawamata Bridge. While they were doing so, they would run directly into the 11th Tank Brigade, which had been sent north after news of the Japanese crossing had reached Soviet headquarters. Neither the Soviets or the Japanese really expected to encounter an enemy in the positions that they did, and neither were really prepared. What developed was a bit of a melee, as Japanese units brought up any anti-tank weaponry while the Russian armor attacked to push them north. There were so many Soviet vehicles that anti-tank ammunition began to run short. What saved the Japanese positions was the general disorganization present among the Soviet armored units. 
they had been moving north to assembly positions, believing that there was little danger that they would be in combat. This meant that when they quickly moved over to the attack, they did so haphazardly. As each small unit of Soviet armor arrived in the area, they would go into the attack directly instead of waiting for a larger concentration. This allowed the Japanese defenders to use their limited anti-tank weaponry to good effect. These piecemeal attacks may have worked if the Japanese had been a weaker force, but given the sheer number of those that had crossed the river, such disorganization resulted in failure. With the real scale of the crossing becoming known after these failures, more Soviet troops were dispatched to hold the Japanese units in place, with the full 11th Tank Brigade, the 7th Mechanized Brigade, and the 24th Mechanized Infantry Regiment, and also some Mongolian cavalry, and these were all given the task of containing and pushing back against the Japanese incursion. These would push hard against the Japanese units that they faced, who had been marching and fighting for several days by this point. On the eastern side of the river, the other part of the Japanese attack would begin with another solid success. This would be the attack utilizing all of the Japanese armor assets, with the goal of pushing the Soviet forces back against the river, while the other force advanced south on the west side of the river to cut off their retreat. The eastern attack was commanded by General Yasuka, and the initial advances went pretty well. The Soviet forces that they faced were generally caught off guard, and the Japanese units quickly pushed through their lines, even to the point of overrunning some Soviet artillery positions. But as the day wore on, the Soviet units would quickly recover their composure and begin to mount a serious set of resistance. The largest issue that the Japanese armor units would encounter throughout the rest of the fighting was simply that the units they were facing were far more capable of anti-tank warfare than anything they had faced before. Most of the Japanese experience with armored warfare had been gained in China, where the general level of preparation for anti-tank operations among the Chinese units was quite low. The Soviets were far more prepared with both anti-tank guns as well as armored-piercing shells loaded in their own tanks and armored cars, which could penetrate the thin frontal armor of the primary Japanese tank, the Type 89. The Japanese armor had a hard time matching up with the Soviet tanks they faced as well, The BT-5 and the BT-7 were the primary Soviet tanks at this point. They were generally far more capable against Japanese tanks in a tank-versus-tank role, with the Japanese tanks having been primarily designed as infantry support vehicles. This design, this infantry support design, had been okay up to this point, but the Japanese armor and its supporting infantry quickly became disconnected due to the stiff Soviet resistance leaving the Japanese tanks to deal with the Soviet defenders by themselves, which they were not really capable of doing. Another interesting feature of the Soviet defenses was the use of piano wire in an anti-tank capacity. This piano wire, which was very difficult for the Japanese to see in their tanks, was strung out in front of Soviet defensive positions, and when it was hit by a tank that, that was driving, it would snap and it would get all messed up in its wheels and its drive mechanisms, which for the Japanese tanks would often put them out of action. All of these problems meant that the attrition rate on Japanese armor was very high, with 20 Type 89s being put out of action in just one small short engagement on that first day. This level of destruction was completely unsustainable given the relatively limited availability of armor reinforcements. In fact, in just one day of fighting, about half of all Japanese armor had been lost, and the units had been forced to retreat back to their starting positions. With this failure, which was already evident on the afternoon of July 3rd before a day had elapsed, Komatsubura and the Japanese leaders had a decision to make. On the west side of the river, their units were still holding, 
and still destroying Soviet units, that, but they were seriously running out of ammunition and supplies. And it seemed clear that even if they could continue to hold, their original purpose of advancing down the western side of the river was impossible to achieve. Even though they did not know precisely what forces the Soviets had put into the area, all that they really knew was that they were quite strong. This known fact, along with the increasing artillery fire from unmolested Soviet artillery positions and the supply issues experienced by the Japanese forces, would result in the order being given to retreat back across the river during the afternoon of July 4th. The two most heavily engaged regiments would retreat across the river on that day, while the third provided a rear guard. The Soviets would learn of this and immediately launch into an attack, while the 3rd Japanese Regiment collapsed back towards the river, finally making it across in the early hours of July 5th. During the two days that the Japanese had spent on the western side of the river, the units had suffered about 800 casualties. On the eastern side, the casualties had also been heavy, including over half of the Japanese tanks being either disabled or destroyed. In the aftermath of the failed attack, the Kwantung army leaders would reconsider the role of the Japanese armored units in the attacks near Nomanhan. The attack had been a failure, and it had cost such a large number of tanks and armored vehicles that the armored units were pulled back from the fighting and they would not be used at any further attacks. While the Japanese were reducing the resources they were putting into the battle, on the Soviet side it was only increasing. Zhukov requested more forces of every kind, and he would get them with train after train bringing men and equipment from the, from the areas of western Russia where they were based into Mongolia. Every truck that could be commandeered in eastern Russia would be used to move this equipment from the railheads to the front in preparation for continuing the fight. In the hopes of the Soviet offensive in the near future, these things were pushed to the front quickly. While these reinforcements were brought in, fighting would continue in the areas around Nomenhan. Japanese attacks would continue, focusing on night attacks by smaller infantry units to try and reduce the effectiveness of Soviet advantages in armor and artillery. The largest of these actions would take place on the night of July 7th, with two regiments of infantry attacking after a short artillery bombardment. They would catch the defending Soviet and Mongolian forces by surprise, but when the sun rose the next day, the Soviet artillery hit them incredibly hard, which was followed by a Soviet counterattack that pushed the Japanese units off of most of their gains. This was the general structure of fighting during the week after the retreat across the river. Just a grind, where the Japanese would attack, maybe gain a bit of ground, be hit by Soviet artillery, and then try to defend against a Soviet counterattack to varying degrees of success. The core issue for the Japanese was that there was simply nothing that the Japanese could do against the massive advantage that the Soviets had in armor and artillery. To try and resolve some of this problem, the Kwantung Army Headquarters brought in some more heavy artillery from other areas. This new artillery would spend the next 10 days arriving and stockpiling ammunition so that it could support another renewed offensive effort. On July 23rd, the firing would start and would continue for three days. Then the, the Japanese would fire over 10,000 artillery rounds. But here was the problem. Even in the middle of this effort, as the Japanese were putting forward all of their artillery strength and they had stockpiled as much artillery ammunition as they could, the Soviets were still firing more. The more the Japanese fired, the more it appeared that the Soviets were just getting stronger. One Japanese artillery officer estimated that the Soviet artillery was able to fire three times as many shells as the Japanese were on the first day of firing. The second day of the artillery duel that, remember, the Japanese opted into was even more lopsided, with Zhukov having brought in his own artillery reserves during the hours of darkness. 
These events were a really good example of the Japanese not really understanding the kind of war they were fighting with the Soviets around Nomanhan. They did not have a good comprehension of just the size and scale of the material requirements that they would have to commit if they wanted to win against a determined Soviet defensive effort. And even if they had known, they wouldn't have had the raw material to make it happen. Because this artillery duel, which had only left the Soviets in a stronger position, would consume over two-thirds of the Japanese artillery ammunition stockpiles in the Kwantung Army area. With the total failure of the attempted artillery offensive, the Japanese went over to the defensive. They did not want to abandon their positions on the eastern side of the river, and so construction of defensive positions began. And they would have plenty of time to prepare for the large Soviet attacks that would be launched, because they wouldn't happen until the last half of August. Those attacks and the final chapter of the action around Nomenhan will be the topic of our next episode.